0: good morning uh, it is uh, a pleasure and a great honor for me to get to preach here the times that I do um, today we are continuing in the series that we're in in the books of Samuel which uh, beyond just getting to preach here being a treat for me it's a special treat because first um, and second Samuel were the books for me that sort of sparked my interest in reading scripture in the first place. I kind of cut my teeth on them. Um, When I was in high school, I had this idea that I would read the Bible from cover to cover because I'd never tried to do that before, never really had an interest to do that. And um, I I remember getting from Genesis to Joshua and being more or less kind of bored with it, uh, but I was trucking through. Got to Judges, which was a little more interesting. There's more violence in that book. Um, so I, I did enjoy that. I was 16 at the time. Um, and then I got to Samuel, and I'd never read 1st or 2nd Samuel before. I mean, besides like David and Goliath. Um, and for some reason just got captivated by the narrative. Um, it wasn't an overwhelming spiritual experience. But just the narrative and the story that I'd never read before uh, sucked me in. The characters and the intricacies of how they relate to each other and especially all the military and political campaigns that happen in Israel at the time was extremely interesting to me. So to get to preach from them is um, really special and I hope that in the same way that I was drawn in uh, to the story and ultimately shown more of who God is, I I hope that all of you get to share what was my experience um, when that happened. So to to recap from last Sunday, if you missed it, or just to to have us all on the same page, um, last Sunday we read from 1 Samuel chapter 4, where the nation of Israel is engaged in a battle with their arch enemies, the Philistines, and uh, the odds are looking not so good for Israel. And so they come up with this plan to go and get the Ark of the Covenant, which, if you remember, is this elaborately decorated golden chest that God gave to Israel uh, to be a a symbol uh, of His presence and His covenant with them. So they go and get the Ark of the Covenant, and they say, oh, let's bring it to our camp, let's have it near the battle, and then God will fight for us and we'll win. So they do that and they get really bold and excited at their prospects and they're confident and then the Philistines sweep in and just beat them as if they didn't even have the ark there. Um, Thousands of Israelite soldiers get killed that day. It's a really terrible loss. And then in addition to all the people that they lose, uh, the ark itself gets stolen By the Philistines, as part of their spoils of battle, they come in and they take everything and they grab the chest and they take it away. And then also on top of that, uh, there's a man named Eli who has been the head priest over Israel for many years, and his two sons were at the battle. They were killed in the battle. And then when Eli gets the news that, first of all, the nation lost the battle to the enemies, Second, both of your sons were killed. And third, the Ark of God's Covenant, which he specially gave to Israel, has been taken by the enemy. He reacts really suddenly, and he falls out of his chair, breaks his neck, and and, uh, Eli dies also. So it is a really awful story, really awful day. And the the in-between events from last Sunday to this Sunday is that the Philistines, they have the ark, they take it back to their um, settlement, and they put it in the temple of their God, which, of course, to God is is a mistreatment of His his, um, ark because they're putting the God of Israel on the same level as the Philistines' God by putting them in the same temple. And so God judges the Philistines. He sends sickness among them as a judgment for mistreating His ark. Uh, So the Philistines kind of wise up and they say, we should get rid of this thing because this all started happening when we brought the Ark into the temple. So to rid themselves of God's judgment, they put the Ark on a wagon and they send it back to Israel to get it away from them because it's causing them to be judged. So the wagon goes back to Israel. The Israelites get the Ark of the Covenant and they keep it at a town called Kiriath-Jerim. And so that's where we are today. So with that context in mind, uh, we're going to read 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 2-17. through 17. It was a long time, twenty years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts... Then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, and commit yourselves to the Lord, and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water, and they poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel was the judge of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Don't stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and he offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far, Has the Lord helped us? So the Philistines were subdued and they did not invade Israelite territory again. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to her, and Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the power of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as judge over Israel all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was, and there he also judged Israel. And he built an altar there to the Lord. Let's pray over the reading of God's word. Almighty God, we gather to worship you, we gather to listen to you, to seek you. Thank you for your word which you've given to us. We humbly ask you to give us understanding, to make our ears inclined to hear your voice and our hearts open to respond to you. We pray for understanding and discernment of your will in our lives, your blessing over this message. Help us to learn and to grow and to become more faithful to you all the days of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. So, according to verse 2, the events in this chapter take place 20 years after the events of what we talked about last Sunday. Um, But something similar is happening that happened back then. Once again, the Philistines are going to attack Israel and the odds look bad for them again. But this time something different happens. Uh, instead of doing what they did last time, which was this manipulation of God, where they, they bring the ark and try to treat it as a weapon to use, they, it says they mourn, and they seek God for help. So they speak to Samuel, and they ask him to intercede. And Samuel says that if you want God's help, if you're seeking Him with all your heart, then you have to put away the false gods that you have among you. So from that we can tell the state of Israel's religion at the time. They were not serving God only, despite the fact that they had the ark back. They were engaged in idolatry, which was the same thing that Israel was always doing in the time of the judges, which took place before what's happening now. Samuel tells them that if they're seeking God, they have to repent of their idolatry. They have to put away the false gods that they have. They have to replace that false worship with wholehearted devotion to the God of Israel. It's repentance that must take place before they're able to seek God. So they do what Samuel says. They they gather together. They do this sort of ritual action Uh, where they they take water and they pour it out on the ground. We're not exactly sure the significance of it, but it's clear that it's related to their corporate repentance. They confess their sin openly and acknowledge it to God. And then they do what Samuel said. They throw away the idols and they start serving the Lord alone. Their their confession is accompanied by a change of action. It's not just an acknowledgement of what they were doing, but replacing that wrong action with the right action. Then Samuel intercedes for them, asks God to answer him and to protect Israel, and God does just that. Finally, the arch enemies of Israel, the Philistines, get defeated because God enables Israel to go out while the Philistines are panicked confused, and they defeat them in battle. Then after their victory, Samuel does something very important. He takes a rock, I don't know really how big it was, but he takes a rock, big enough to serve as a memorial, and he sets it up at the place where the battle was won, and he names it Ebenezer. I don't think he had Christmas in mind, Ebenezer Scrooge, all right. Uh, He calls the rock Ebenezer which, uh, if your Bible has footnotes like mine does, um, it will tell you that the word Ebenezer means stone of help. So Samuel takes this rock and he names it the stone of help, and he puts it up and he says, Thus far has the Lord helped us. Something interesting about this story and the one from last Sunday is that uh, the battle 20 years previously, where they lost, also takes place at a location called Ebenezer. But this time, the outcome is very different from that time. The Israelites do things better. Uh, they get their devotion to God in order. They confess their sin. And they seek God to help them rather than trying to force Him to do what they want Him to do. And when they seek God for help, Samuel's answer is to tell them to repent. Repent. And for us, a lot of times today, I think we have the idea that repentance means feeling guilty. We come away with this idea where we hear somebody saying, oh, you know, I need to repent of this, and we think that means I need to feel really bad about what I do, because after all, God wants us to feel really bad about being really bad, right? But that's not the answer to that's no. That is not the biblical image of repentance. The, The point of repentance is not to just feel really guilty for what we do. Repentance is a shifting of direction. Turning away from one thing and facing the right thing. We see this process very clearly in the text where in, uh, in verses 3 and 4, Samuel doesn't say, okay, all of you now feel really bad and then God's going to help. No, he says if you're seeking God, put away the wrong things. Throw your idols away. Get rid of your false worship." and replace that with service to the Lord alone. And so the people do that. They throw away their idols. God answers them. And in their newly reestablished devotion to God, they get to see the way that God works on their behalf, the way that God does something mighty for them. And after God works on their behalf, they get this Ebenezer Memorial Rock to commemorate what happened at the battle. We do the same thing in our culture today. I mean, all the time you see plaques or statues or some sort of monument to, to make note of when something special happened. And that's actually something that God does really regularly in Israel's history. Uh, he loves to, to remind His people by the use of monuments. Uh, one example uh, is in Joshua chapter 4. I think. Yeah, Joshua 4. When God brings Israel into the Promised Land finally, He does something similar to what He did at the Red Sea. He parts the Jordan River in half. He makes the water stop flowing so they can walk across it and get into Canaan. And then He says, once you get to the other side, everybody grab a stone for as many tribes as there are of Israel from the middle of the river. Take 12 rocks, set them up on the bank, and then... When your kids, many years down the road, come and say, what are these rocks doing here? Tell them it's because the Lord enabled us to cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land. The rock's purpose is to answer people's questions, especially their kids, about the work that God did on their behalf. In this narrative, Israel's repentance leads them to a place where they're properly devoted to God, which then puts them in the right position to see God work on their behalf. When they're not trusting in themselves anymore or doing things contrary to His will, rather submitting to His provision, they're able to see the way in which He works for them and takes care of them. And in repentance even today, the exact same thing happens to us. When people repent of sinful habits, when we give up our apathy to God's will and instead look to Him and commit ourselves rightly to Him, we get the opportunity to look up just like Samuel and recognize and say, wow, look what God has done for us. The ultimate expression of that, of course, is the work of Jesus where we observe Jesus, We watch His work and His sacrifice. And the fact that He did it, as the old Christian creed says, for us men and for our salvation. And we say, whoa, look at what God has done for us. Look how far the Lord has helped us. Now this sermon series is in search for a better king. At this place so far in 1 Samuel, we don't actually have a king yet. Saul or David or Solomon, they haven't come along. But Samuel, who is this character we've been introduced to previously, Samuel is filling this role of calling the nation to repentance, which is something that the king is ultimately supposed to do. In the book of Deuteronomy, it makes clear that whenever Israel eventually has a king... That king is supposed to know the law so well and to know God's will so closely that he can lead the nation in righteousness and call them into repentance when they're drifting away from God's will. And the same thing, fast-forwarding a long way, now that King Jesus is here, now that the true and better king that we're searching for is here, his role is the same thing, calling people to repentance. In Mark's Gospel, the first thing that Jesus does when He comes on the scene is announce that with His coming, the kingdom of God is near, so people should repent and believe this good news. And so now when we submit to Jesus, when we answer His call to repentance and take our focus off ourselves and put it back onto God where it needs to be, we always get that opportunity to say, look how far the Lord has helped us. And Jesus, I suggest, is both the greatest call to repentance that God ever made, and He's also the greatest memorial marker, the greatest Ebenezer of God's work that God has ever done. See, our foes today are no longer Philistines or some sort of raging army that we have to fight on a battlefield. Instead, God sees and did see that our greatest foe, the greatest foe of humanity is sin. It's not a, a raging foreign army. The greatest foe of man is sin. And God won a decisive military victory against sin when He worked through His Son Jesus on the cross. And We no longer have a stone monument set up to look at that. Instead, we have a wooden monument. We have an Ebenezer which is the wooden cross of Jesus, where we see the place where the Son of God willingly suffered, died to make atonement for sinful people, and then rose again to life so that when we repent and come to Him as well, we can share in His new life too. So as the Israelites were meant to look at the rocks by the Jordan River, to look at the Ebenezer Stone at Mizpah, and to say, look how far God has helped us, so are we meant to look at the cross and to behold how much God has helped us. Look and behold the extent of God's love for people, that He would work in such a way for us at the expense of His Son. Look at God's commitment to help people and see God's victory once again. After so many victories before, see the ultimate victory He won against sin and against death in His triumphant Son. And then, listen. Listen to the call of Jesus to repent of sins. To repent of the ways where we drift away from facing God. Even Christians continually need a life of repentance where On any given day, we're walking our own way. And Jesus says, no, focus back on Me. Repent of that and come back to Me. Sins can always creep in, whatever they may be. And the call of Jesus is to repent, believe the good news, and to trust instead in God's way rather than our way. And then I I think that when we see the greatest Ebenezer, which is the cross, we focus rightly on God's work in His Son, we also, we also get to see the victories that God does in our life, and the works that God does in our life, which are otherwise not visible if we're still going our own way, instead of repenting and turning to God and looking at Him. I want to give you an example of what I mean from, from my life about if I can use the phrase, seeing an Ebenezer in my life. Uh, When I was 17, I was a senior in high school, and there was this guy in school who was uh, the outcast of outcasts. He was um, by far the least liked person in school. I don't really know why, but he was. uh, It was very visible on the outside, how isolated he was. and at one point, I was on my senior trip with the whole class, and uh, people were, were actively trying to make sure that he was not in anybody's group as we were doing the things we were doing on our trip. And I was doing the exact same thing. Uh, like I said at the beginning, when I was 16, I started sort of reading the Bible. It led me to this deepening of my faith uh, where I claimed it, more for myself, was growing an understanding of it and the demand that it made on my life. Uh, but here it was a year later and I was, I was joining everybody else and pushing this guy away um, and his, his pain was obvious. Um, and it, on one day, uh, really suddenly when I was trying to do what everybody else was and just like be comfortable and at ease and not be inconvenienced by this person uh, I felt this, this tangible knot in my gut. Uh, and I, I could not focus on anything else until I figured out what was going on with me. And I didn't hear an audible voice. I didn't have a light from heaven come down on me. But I knew what was going on was that I was, I was claiming God's name. I was wearing the name of His Son on me. But what I was doing was the complete opposite of what Jesus was doing. And I fought it. I didn't want to inconvenience me or even my friends by including this person, which seemed like something so simple to do. Um, But I didn't want to. And I was being just just plain mean and selfish. Uh, And finally, for the rest of that day, this was happening to me. And I finally gave in and said, fine, fine be nice to this guy. He can be our friend. He can hang out with us. And of course I did. Um, And it ended up being really cool. It wasn't amazing or this big, like, triumphant moment, but it was really cool. And I ended up being friends with that guy for the rest of the year. And I'm not making myself look better here. I'm sharing my experience of, at the time, I could not see many ways in which God was changing me. I couldn't see sort of markers of His victory, of His work in my life. I was just sort of going along. After that moment though, in retrospect, I could see that that was so out of character for me to do that. It was so different than what I wanted to do, what I'd planned to do, and I can see now the way in which God was working, God was defeating things in me that were not of Himself. He was calling me to repent of my selfishness. And I look back on that, and I see that was, that was the obvious thing that I wanted to do, but at the time I couldn't see it. I didn't want to be any better than I was. But now that I look back, I would never want to be the way I was before. I would never want to go my own way as I did at that time when i've already experienced god's way seen the way he works and seen how much better it was so repentance repentance in our lives is not it's not the call to hang our heads down and stare down in guilt all the time in fact it's the very opposite of that repentance is the opportunity to look up away from ourselves away from things we're giving ourselves to, away from our apathy to God's will, and rather to behold God and who He is and the work that He's done on our behalf in Jesus to bring us to a place that we couldn't have been before. It gives us the chance to say, thus far has the Lord brought us. Thus far has the Lord helped us. Repentance is about putting down everything that God says are bad. God says are bad for us and for the people around us and for the people we interact with. And instead, turning to face the cross, to look at the love of God and the action of God and seeing the extent that He went to to bring us out of those things. Repentance stands as the call for Jesus today. For everybody, even Christians who already come to Him, the life of repentance is essential to stay focused on God, to stay following Him, putting down things that creep into our lives. As Israel, they had the covenant, they knew God, but this, these things kept creeping into their lives and into their communities, and Samuel had to call them, even at that time, to put them away. And The same thing happens to us today, and the call of Jesus is always... Repent and believe the good news. To close, I want to read um, something Paul wrote about new life. Uh, New life that we have at the hands of God, which he provides for us. It's from Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace will increase? Absolutely not. For we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we also may live a new life. If we've been united with Him like this in His death... We'll certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who's died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with Him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you're not under law but under grace. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank You for the monument of your son's cross, which always stands. Thank you for reminding us every time we see it of your love, your power to defeat our enemies. Thank you for new life that we have with Jesus and for continually calling us back to you when we stray. I pray that just as the Israelites had the Marker to remember that we would remember your work, O Lord. Remember your call to repentance in our lives. Show us the ways that we need to repent from. Show us sins in our lives that we're not aware are creeping in. Help us to hear Jesus' voice, to respond to him, and to follow you wholeheartedly and to serve you alone. We give you thanks for your word, for your promise, and your work on our behalf.